We will be continuing in the book of John this morning, so I would encourage you to please open the Bible to the book of John. As you likely know, John is in the New Testament, after Luke, before Acts. We're going to be continuing this morning our sermon series entitled, Simply Jesus. So in the Gospels, we basically see what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and how people responded to Jesus. So that's what we're after today as well. Simply seeing what Jesus said, what he did, and how people responded to him. As we do that, we must consider how we will respond to Jesus. So hopefully you're with me there in your scriptures, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to be reading from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. And needed needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you... Reveal yourself to us. It's not something that you had to do. It's not something that you're forced to do, but you desired to reveal yourself to us so that we would know you, so that we'd have a relationship with you and be able to walk with you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, who is the fulfillment of your revelation to us. He displays to us who you are, and so we pray this morning that we would see Jesus clearly, Lord. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, Lord, to to hear your word, Lord, and to be transformed by it, and that all this would be for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I looked around the room of the restaurant, I commented to my wife. I told her, This would be me if it were not for the grace of God. What I saw when I looked around the room were a bunch of bib numbers from marathons and half marathons that someone, maybe the owner or manager of the restaurant, 
had competed in. They were framed as a sort of decoration, I guess, for the restaurant. But also in mind, in my mind, as trophies of both travel and accomplishment. I didn't know the person that had run in these races and collected these medals and bib numbers, but nonetheless, they communicated to me that running and finishing these races was something this person treasured. And I grew up running, something that I still enjoy doing. I'm a bit slower now and don't run as much, but I still like to try. But I also have a bent towards accomplishment. And there's a part of me that would like to live for that. To live as though that were the ultimate thing. But during the time that Christ really caused me to be born again, I feel like, and I gained assurance of Christ's death and resurrection for me, I also came to a deep conviction that a life that is truly after Christ has room for only one passion. There can be other things that we enjoy, and I still enjoy running, but there can be only one thing that we truly, most deeply treasure. We have room for only one passion. So in many ways, the Lord, in His grace, has spared me from going after some of the things that don't last, but it's still a constant battle of the heart, which I'm sure you should all be able to identify with, to guard against what we treasure, to guard against what we look for for ultimate fulfillment. Sometimes I approach ESPN or Facebook as though there could be good news that would trump the real good news of the gospel. I don't do it intentionally, but if I get up in the morning and that's the first thing I go to, what is that communicating? And often that happens, and I would imagine it's the same for many of you. I think with the internet and smartphones today, we're more pulled than ever to things that would make false promises of more fulfillment than Christ. And ultimately, we can become very, very distracted and live for the fleeting things of this world. And we are all prone to treasure other things above Christ. And that moment in the restaurant with my wife served as a moment of giving praise to God for protecting me in some ways and giving me enjoyment and contentment in Him. But also it showed me and reminded me of how far I have to go, how much I continue to look to other things and to treasure other things above Christ. So as we're in the text today, our passage highlights this struggle of treasuring other things above God. We'll see it especially with those who are sellers and money changers in the temple. But it's not, again, just a struggle that we can point a finger at someone else and believe it's not us. But it's a struggle that we can all identify with on some measure. So we both treasure other things above God and in doing so, As we'll see in this passage, we're also prone to corrupt the means he's given us to meet with him. John Calvin called the heart an idol factory. And since the fall, that's what we do. We treasure other things above God and create idols in our hearts. But we'll see that God has made a way to free us from the slavery and futility that comes with treasuring other things above him. From our passage today, the main thing that I want us to see or to come away with is that Jesus replaced the temple as our meeting place with God. And because he's forming a new temple comprised of his people, 
we must walk in faith and repentance. So as we work our way through the passage, we'll first see that because we treasure other things above God, we need to be cleansed. Next, we'll see that because we are prone to corrupt our meeting place with God, we need a meeting place that is incorruptible. And God has provided that in himself, in Jesus. Finally, we'll see that since Jesus is fashioning a new temple comprised of his people, we must walk in faith and repentance. So, first thing that we see in the text, because we treasure other things above God, we need to be cleansed. Jesus, as we begin to read through the passage, we see that he is in Jerusalem in conjunction with the celebration of the Passover. Passover is an annual Jewish celebration and remembrance of how God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. After Pharaoh had refused time and time again to let the Israelites go free, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in Egypt so that Pharaoh would finally let the people go free and be able to worship him. God had instructed the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and to put the blood of the lamb above their doorpost. In every home that did not put the blood of a lamb above their doorpost, the firstborn son was killed. The sons of Israel were saved by the blood of the lamb that was put on their doorposts. We can picture Jesus coming into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, knowing that Passover pointed toward him and the blood that he would soon shed as God's lamb to set his people free. He was surely zealous to see the people live in response to the redemption of the Passover, to live with gratitude for who God is and what he did to save them, to treasure God above all. As he went to the temple, did he find people treasuring him above all? passionately desiring to exalt God alone as their highest treasure? Maybe there were some, but obviously what stood out to him were those that weren't doing that. We read in verse 14, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Again, I think this is a pretty familiar story to most of us, but before we jump directly to conclusion, about those selling and changing money, it's helpful to have a little bit more context. The Israelites were commanded to, commanded to sacrifice animals at the temple and worship to God as a means of a temporary covering for sin. And many of them came from great distances away from Jerusalem to do that in Jerusalem. Too far to take an animal with them all the way there to do that. So in Deuteronomy 14, the Lord made provision for Israelites to take money with them on their journey. And when they came to Jerusalem, to then buy animals that they would sacrifice. So the Lord had made provision for animals to be sold near the temple to help the people worship. So why does Jesus become so upset at what's happening? Let's read on in the text. Verses 15 and 16, 16 say, And making a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The sellers were not doing, just doing business near the temple, but had actually set up shop in the temple complex itself. 
They were not in the temple building where the sacrifices were offered up, but they were in an adjacent area in the temple complex. This is known to us because there were different Greek words that were used for the temple. And, then, and in this instance, the Greek word used here is one that referred to the court of the Gentiles. So it's kind of within the temple complex, but not the actual temple building where the sacrifices were made. And it's important to note that the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, again, they were not allowed inside this temple building where sacrifices were made. But they were only allowed in a special designated area adjacent to that building called the court of the Gentiles. And this area, the court of the Gentiles, was where the sellers and the money changers were conducting business. By their presence, it had become a noisy market, not a place conducive to prayer and to worship. Jesus had come so that all nations would be brought to God. But by selling in the only part of the temple complex where Gentiles could worship, other nations were being driven away. By Jesus calling it a house of trade, it is obvious that they were not simply selling animals and changing money as a service to the people. Rather, they were seeking to make a profit. And indeed, they were. They were using convenience and the need that the people had and taking advantage of them. They were treasuring money and everything that come, came with it above the incomparable Lord, who alone is worthy of all honor and glory. When we think about Jesus observing the situation, what he saw happening in the temple complex, we have to again remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who created everything by speaking. The one that 1 Corinthians 5-7 calls our Passover lamb. The one who along with the Father and Spirit is to be treasured above all. He could not stand by idly while the place for worship was being profaned. He could not stand by as the sellers proclaimed that money is to be treasured above God. He was zealous, and his passion led to action. Verse 17 tells us that the disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered that when they observed what Jesus did. David, in the Old Testament, as God's anointed king, had written those words in Psalm 69.9. And he had written them, David had written them, out of a passion for the place the Lord created for, him, for, the, for the Lord himself to be worshipped. But David's words then found their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, our forever king. David's zealousness for the house of the Lord and for God to be worshipped prefigured Christ, who would have that zeal and that passion for the Lord to be worshipped. The temple was to be a place that honored God and that helped the people to treasure him above all else. And those that were selling animals and trading money were displaying that they treasured money above God. As we read further in the text, we see that Jesus knows what is in man, and he knew what was in the sellers, and he knows what is in us. And they found more joy and delight in the money and all that came with it than they did in God. Again, we should not think that this is very different than the culture in which we live, nor very different from our own minds and hearts. It may not be money for you, but it is something else that, that competes 
to be your ultimate treasure. And it might seem easier for us to point a finger at those that Jesus drives from the temple, but are we really that much different? Do we not all at various times treasure things above God? Looking for our deepest satisfaction in those things? So I would ask, what, what is it that you struggle with treasuring above God? Time, our time, money, and effort are pretty good indicators of what we treasure. So what do those things say about what you treasure? If you use social media, I would ask, what does it indicate to others that you treasure? Because it does indicate something. Does it show what people think of you as what you treasure? Or your family? Or the latest thing that you've consumed, whether it be restaurant or movie or whatever? We consume a lot in our culture. Um, is it the, the last you know, workout that you completed? Uh, the last achievement of your kid? And I'm not saying that we should not have some delight in those things. God made us to enjoy many things, but not, not those things as ultimate things. What is your supreme joy beyond all compare? Another critical issue that I think is at stake here in this passage is that the sellers were not just treasuring money above God, but were leading and influencing others to do the same. We don't live in isolation, but we all have influence on others. What does your life proclaim to others that should be treasured? And again, I think this challenge is relevant for all, but I would, I would especially argue relevant for those who are raising children. Parents, what you treasure is commu communicated to your kids without words. They learn to treasure what you treasure. So if it's academics or athletic achievements, they'll learn to, to treasure those things, perhaps above God. If it's money, if it's home, if it's status, if it's vacations, whatever it may be, they will learn to treasure those things above God. And I think we often say this, you know, one of, as parents, one of our, our deepest desires for our kids is to see that they're happy. Well, happiness versus ultimate satisfaction, which comes in knowing God and treasuring Him above all. If we spend endless hours taking our kids to and from different activities, but can't spend 15 to 30 minutes in the home each day to, to read the Bible together, to pray, to memorize scripture, to pray for missionaries, what does that say about what's important to us? What does that say about what's important to us and our family? What does that communicate to our kids and many parents are distraught when their kids move out and seem to reject Christ, but often they never knew Christ to begin with. They learn to worship idols, to have other things as their heart's treasure. And they learn that from their parents in the home. They simply continue down that path. They might have come to church and youth group, which are important, but if pretty much all the other time of the week is aimed at something else, it's going to be hard for a few hours each week to undo or to overpower countless other hours. John Piper has said this, If you want wealth more than God, you will lose God and be left poor. 
If you want food more than God, you'll lose God and be left empty. If you want good times more than God, you'll lose God and be left wanting. If you want admiration more than God, you'll lose God and be forgotten. He went on to say, The best way to enjoy food, sex, music, money, influence, entertainment, is to enjoy them less than God. Put the gift before God, and you'll lose both. Very challenging words, for myself included. We're called to treasure God above all, but we fail, and therefore we too need to be cleansed. As we continue in the text, we see that because we are prone to corrupt the place God graciously gave us to meet with him, the temple, we must seek an understanding of Jesus that is consistent with Scripture. Verses 18 through 21 say, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus had cleansed the temple without help from anyone else. And those he cleansed from the temple did not seem to put up a great fight as he was removing them. Perhaps they had some conviction that what they were doing was not right. But they also clearly gave some authority to Jesus. Otherwise, they would not have let him remove them. But they questioned Jesus, where does your authority come from? And his answer leaves them dumbfounded. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, John tells us, he was not talking about the physical building. He was talking about his body. He has authority to cleanse the temple because he has authority over life and death, which he proved through his resurrection from the dead. By Jesus equating the temple in which the Jews worshipped with his own body, he is pointing to a truth that would have been earth-shattering for Jews. For Jews, the temple had been given to them by God through Solomon, as we read earlier in the service. And it was a meeting place for them to meet with God and to worship him there. And they, the Jews deeply revered the temple. Jesus, by saying, destroy this temple, his body, and I will raise it in three days, he was telling the Jews and the whole world that the physical temple is no longer man's place to meet God. Jesus is man's place to meet God. Jesus fulfills the purpose of the temple and makes it obsolete. This is why he says later in John fourteen six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way, the only way to God. One commentator wrote, about Jesus. He is claiming nothing less than the reconstituting of the entire worship of God's people around his own person and mission. In view of Jesus becoming man's meeting place to meet with God, it's important to see what is happening here in terms of our tendency to corrupt the means God has given us to meet with him. In this passage, we see how the temple becomes corrupted because sellers and money changers treasured wealth above God. Worship, then, the very thing that we were created to do was hindered because they treasured something else above God. So in the same way that the Israelites corrupted the temple, we are prone to try to corrupt Jesus to suit us. 
When we do this, our worship becomes incredibly hindered. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Since Jesus is God, that statement certainly extends to him, and it carries an even greater significance, I would argue, because Jesus is our meeting place with God. When our conception of Jesus doesn't match the Bible, both our view of God is hindered, as well as our means of approaching God, drawing near to him. Since we approach God through Jesus, if we don't have an accurate view of Jesus, our ability to draw near with God will be greatly hindered. In fact, part of Jesus' character that we see in this passage is often denied or minimized in our culture today. Much of our culture would try to say Jesus is tolerant, loving, and okay with who I am and what I do. Really? Is that what the cell changers would have said? Is that what they would have said? Jesus is just okay with whatever I do? In our passage, we see a Jesus who doesn't minimize or excuse or tolerate sin. We see a Jesus who is passionate about God, receiving the glory that he ought to receive. Although the Jesus we see here is zealous for God to receive maximal glory, it does not make him any less loving. He is no less a friend of sinners, as Luke 7.34 describes him. Having a right view of God and biblical theology in general involves holding truths about God that could appear contradictory to our small minds, my small mind at least, to hold them in a difficult parallel tension. God is infinite and we are finite. We cannot ever be, he cannot ever be fully understood by man. So we should not try to explain him away so that there is no longer mystery. God can, can and does have wrath towards sin, but to be loving at the same time. That's why he welcomes us to himself in repentance. So I would argue our conception of Jesus is indescribably important. The more our conception of Jesus accurately reflects the whole Bible, the more we are enabled to truly worship God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us about Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So if we conceive the character of Jesus to be different than the character of God the Father, we have a problem. Try as we might, we cannot change Jesus. But we do try. And if we have an improper view of Jesus, our, our meeting place with God and the, the mediator is corrupted. God himself is corrupted. So what comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? Does it match the fullness of what Scripture tells us? Is he, and this is not an exhaustive list, but a few things, is he infinite, eternal, unchangeable, kind, holy, forgiving, just, loving, powerful, tender, wise, and wrathful towards sin? Does he match the character of God the Father that we have, are given from the full counsel of God's Word, Genesis to Revelation? God the Father and God the Son have the same character. If our goal, and it should be, is to become more like Jesus, that should be one of our chief goals, we better make sure we have the right Jesus. The one that's revealed in all 
So we need to understand what our own conception of Jesus is and ask for the Lord's help to see Jesus as he really is. As we approach the last part of the text, we see that Jesus' role as our meeting place with God is eternally secure. He will always be available to us as our meeting place with God. And because he is fashioning a new temple comprised of his people, we must walk in faith and repentance. Verses 22 through 25 say, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Even though the, dis the disciples were with Jesus constantly for two years, there was still much they did not understand about him and about his mission until he rose again. John tells us that after he was raised from the dead, then his disciples remembered what Jesus said, and they believed in the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So for the disciples, the resurrection was what made everything about Jesus make sense, especially in light of the Old Testament scriptures. It is the same with us. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, none of the rest of his life and even his crucifixion has any significance. The temple of Jesus' body was destroyed at the cross. But he did raise the temple, his body, just as he said he would. And just as the Old Testament scriptures had foretold. In Jesus' new life, his resurrection, we have new life by faith. In his resurrection to new life, we are resurrected to new life. Our focus as believers is often on the crucifixion, which can't be minimized, but we need a better balance at times, I think, of also focusing on the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection is what allows Jesus to continue to be our meeting place with God, our mediator. Because Jesus is alive eternally, he continues to serve is our meeting place with God. Although the temple and the human priests who served it have passed away, Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 tells us about Jesus. It says, he, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The physical temple was subject, like any building, to dilapidation, to decay. And in fact, it was destroyed not long after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. It was destroyed around 70 AD. Because Jesus rose to new life and lives forever, his function as our meeting place with God is eternally secure. In our passage, we see that the disciples' reaction to Jesus' resurrection, to him becoming our meeting place with God, was faith. They believed the scriptures and the words of Jesus. We know enough about the disciples throughout the scripture. We know enough about the rest of their lives to see that lives continued to be ones of faith and repentance. They understood that Jesus being our meeting place with God wasn't just an external thing. 
like with the temple, but an internal thing through the Holy Spirit. This is why in just in John 4, Jesus tells the woman, at the, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is telling her that in the new covenant, God does a work of the Spirit in all believers to make true worship be about the heart. We first worship inwardly, and then our inward worship takes outward expression. Because the temple is about worship, and worship has become primarily inward, God is crafting a new temple comprised not of brick and mortar, but comprised of his people. Next us to God by doing a work inside us through the Holy Spirit. And this is for all tribes and tongues, whoever would believe in him. In Ephesians, in a section in which Paul explains how Jews and Gentiles have become one in Christ, he says this. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So even as Jesus replaced the physical temple as a meeting place for us with God, he's also building a new temple. He cornerstone of that temple. And we, his body, the body of Christ, he is fashioning as a place for him to dwell. So because of the work of Christ, man has become the dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit. And you, if you have trusted Christ, you are God's dwelling place, the holy God inside of us. What effect does that have upon you? My hope is that it would make us humble and grateful. I also hope that it would cause us to think soberly about ourselves. Are we consistently confessing and repenting of sin? Not out of guilt or lack of assurance that Jesus has paid it all, but because God delights to dwell in us. I think if we understand that God delights to dwell in us, we'll be concerned about making ourselves a place that he is delighted to dwell. If we are the dwelling place of God, it's no wonder he tells us in 1 Peter, be holy as I am holy. You may have received Christ. You may know that your sins are paid for by him. But when you look inside, does what you see look like a place that God would want to dwell? I'm not saying we should be perfect or ever will be. I am not. I never will be. But we should see a, a pattern of growth towards holiness, even if that journey has ups and downs. It should be a growth towards holiness. And it's not a work that we can do by ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy, but we can ask God to make us humble, 
to convict us of sin and to give us strength to run away from sin and to treasure him above all. So I would ask, is there a particular sin struggle that continues to have a foothold in your life? Maybe it's anger. It could be lust. Perhaps it's laziness. Maybe it's lack of patience. It might be a particular idol or a host of idols or treasuring something else above God. Confess it to the Lord today, even right now, and repent. And if you really desire to be holy, then share that struggle with somebody else and invite them into that. Ask them to pray for you, hold you accountable. As we've gone throughout this passage today, we've seen that we both treasure other things above God and we are prone to corrupt the means that he has given us to meet with him. We're prone to make Jesus somebody else other than who he really is, as we see in Scripture. But praise be to God that that's not the end of the story. Jesus, so that we would treasure him above all. And Jesus, simple as our meeting place with God. And because he is forming a new temple, his Yo, Jesus cleanses us to treasure him above all. Jesus replaced the temple as our meeting place with God. And because he is forming a new temple comprised of his people, we must walk in faith and repentance. Jesus is freeing us from our slavery to idolatry. He's freeing us from treasuring other things above him. And he's cleansing the people that he is calling to himself. He's in the process of reforming our view of him, that our approach to God and our fellowship with God will be unhindered. Finally, because Jesus is comprising a new temple, fashioned out of his people, we must walk in faith and repentance. God, if you're a believer, God dwells in you. Is he a place where he is comfortable and welcome? As we continue to walk in faith and repentance, we can rest assured that the temple, the place of God's own dwelling, that he is fashioning out of us, will also not be subject to dilapidation, to decay. The new temple he is forming of us exists now on earth in the body of Christ, the, the true church. But his permanent home is the city that has foundations, the new Jerusalem, whose designer and builder is God. Jesus has replaced the temple eternally. He is our meeting place with God. Because he did rise again and work in us through faith, he lives to make intercession for us. So we can be assured that the temple he is creating out of his people on earth, the body of Christ, will never be subject to decay. He will sustain and complete, he will finish that work of creating a new temple out of us, his people, for himself, for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We come to you acknowledging that we do continue to struggle with treasuring other things above you. 
But Lord, we see in Scripture we are presented with a God who is beyond all compare, who doesn't, who doesn't compare to the things of this earth. Lord, help us to see the things that we would put above you. Help us to see the things that we would look to for ultimate fulfillment. Lord, we also acknowledge that we, we are prone to making, to making you someone that you're not so that we would be more comfortable. We're prone to making Jesus someone that he is not so that we would be more comfortable. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to embrace you, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the fullness of your character. Lord, that we would be changed by you and become more like you. Not that we would try to change you to match us. Lord, we are thankful that you delight to dwell in us. That is amazing. A holy God delights to dwell in sinful people like me. Lord, let us be thankful. Let us not doubt the work that you've done on the cross. You've forgiven us completely. If we have trusted you in faith, let us not doubt that. But also, let us be passionate for becoming holy as you are holy. For becoming a people both individually and collectively. For becoming a people in which you would delight to dwell. As we sang about earlier, prepare us to be a sanctuary, a place for your dwelling, for your spirit to dwell. Not only for us, but so that others would be drawn toward you. And Lord, also help us to remember that what we treasure doesn't just affect us. It affects those around us. And when we treasure and put other things above you, we we call others to do the same. Whether we speak that or whether it's just by example. Lord, help us to be aware of that, those around us, how we're influencing them, and aware of how we're influencing those in our home as well. Lord, nothing compares to you. No enjoyment this earth has to offer compares to you, to knowing you, to walking with you, to worshiping you. Lord, make our lives about that, about giving all honor and glory and praise to your name. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In Revelation 22, near the end, it says this. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. That's us, the bride. We say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. But the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Jesus satisfies. He's our highest treasure. 
And also says this in Revelation 21, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is our future that we're looking forward to joyously, but that has begun now. The dwelling place of God, heaven has broken in to earth, and the dwelling place of God is with his people. Consider yourself a dwelling place for God and ask what that means for you today and in the days to come. Go in peace.